Hi, this is Privacy Piracy, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And Mari's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, CNN, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. She had her own PBS special a couple years ago. If you want to learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hi, Murray. Hi there. Well, you're almost getting your voice back. I'm like 80% back. Yeah, you're 80% back. And you know, tonight we have such a great guest who we both had a lot of fun with when we got to meet him, get to know him a little bit better at the Poneman Institute back in Traverse City, Michigan. Hey, cherry capital of the world. Yeah, that was really fun. And so we bet when we ate dinner with him, we Made sure he had enough wine so he would agree to be on our show. So we're really lucky that he's going to be on tonight. And he is a super-duper guy, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about our guest, and then we'll get him on here. Tonight we're interviewing Richard Purcell, who is CEO of Corporate Privacy Group. And lots of interesting things about Richard. He actually started out as the original privacy officer for Microsoft. At Microsoft, he designed, developed, implemented, and oversaw one of the world's largest, most advanced privacy programs, spanning software development, web deployment, infrastructure management, workforce management, and consumer data handling practices. His corporate offices developed and monitored a distributed team of privacy managers throughout the enterprise, including global subsidiaries. From that He learned so much that he decided that it would be best if he actually started his own corporate privacy group, and that's how he became CEO. Corporate Privacy Group is an independent consulting firm focused on establishing sustainable, affordable privacy programs. Richard Purcell advises Fortune 100 corporations and government agencies about achieving the twin goals of respecting and protecting personal information. He gives seminars, lectures, he writes, he promotes leading practices for consumer data protection and security. He is terrific. And he also holds several significant privacy appointments. He was chairman of trustee for 2005-2006. And remember, we actually had the president of trustee on our show. Remember, Fran? Yes, and a, a great n- nonprofit organization, and he currently sits on the Privacy Certification Advisory Board of the International Association of Privacy Professionals. So he helped to make that test that I said was so hard. And he's also a member of the Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee for the Department of Homeland Security. And he's a fellow at the Poneman Institute, and we've had Larry on many times, and we're so thrilled. He's one of my brother fellows. So I'm so glad you could take the time to be with us tonight, Richard. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Mari. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you have such a wonderful background. What was it like to be the original privacy officer at Microsoft? Well, there's a lot of words that could describe 
that, but I suppose words like exciting, confusing, <laughs> productive, uh, daunting uh, come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I had lots of support. There, it was uh, a, a team effort. There were a lot of people uh, over the years that had come together around uh, this issue for Microsoft, and we had been working together uh, to establish a program at the company. I was very fortunate and quite honored to uh, be either pushed forward or, or selected out of the group of, of those people uh, to be the leader of that effort. Um, we started off pretty modestly, uh, but uh, over time we built a, a very large organiza- organized effort. We had at least 40 to 50 people who were directly involved in running privacy programs within all the divisions of the company and in the variety of country locations where we operated. Uh, but, you know, I had a, a staff of six to eight people that worked directly for me, and uh, we also had independence from most of the company, uh, the org chart. We, we fan, fashioned the, our position in the org chart in such a way as to uh, achieve a level of independence that was very helpful at all, as well. But uh, it was very exciting uh, and uh, one of the best jobs anybody could ever have hoped to gotten. I was very, very lucky. I remember listening to you speak at one of the first uh, International Association of Privacy Professional meetings when you were the privacy officer. And and at that time, there weren't very many privacy officers. I mean, you were one of the first before many of the companies even started to have privacy officers. And and still a lot of companies don't have them. Um, How well was that position accepted in those years? Early on, I would have to say that there were hesitations about the the position. Uh, this is a position that, uh, depending on the individual and the management support, can have quite a bit of authority. Um, because privacy is this kind of, and we'll talk about this in a minute, it's kind of this squishy uh, goal. It doesn't, doesn't show up in the P&L, doesn't actually show up on anybody's objectives. Hard to, hard to quantify. For those reasons, it took a while for it to become an important part. Now it's becoming more accepted uh, as part of the information management strategy itself. Uh, it's varied uh, in its role across different industries and different kinds of companies and different companies themselves. Um, and I think that ultimately it's emerged today to where there's a spe- spectrum of function for the chief privacy officers. They can be influencers and be advocates and evangelists. Uh, They can be compliance managers that are specifically looking for certain behaviors that fit into certain requirements definitions. Um, And they can also be strategic thinkers who can look at personal information for the company as a strategic uh, asset, like, I don't know, intellectual property or process controls or that kind of thing, and can create new values for the company. Um, So there's there's a broad spectrum of the way it's emerged. Lots of hats. I mean, I even think of them sometimes of the privacy office. I know that sometimes they have to be mediators between marketing and security and everybody else and see if they can get some money for their own, <laughs> you know, team. It's, it's, it's a, it can be a tough place. I, I, used, to, I used to say that uh, part of my job was to make sure that everybody was at least a little bit upset with me. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit upset and a little bit happy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't if you pleased everybody then something is terribly wrong. Right. So and, and for example when you were at Microsoft, who did you, what what level did you report to? 
I was reporting at quite a high level. I was uh, originally I reported to Bob Herbold, the chief operating officer at the time. Mm-hmm. I had a short transition period uh, under Rick Beluzzo, who was the president of Microsoft for a while. Um, but for the most part, I reported to Craig Monday, who's the chief technology officer. I in, see. In yeah. each of those cases, uh, each of those individuals reported directly to Bill, uh, Bill Gates, right. at, at the company, uh, which helped with that sense of independence that I had, um, right. direct access to uh, the CEO at the time and the chairman, um, a very you know, high level of, of intervention if I needed to, uh, to, to get any intervention. Uh, oftentimes, that worked as a, uh, as a deterrent. Uh, people could argue with me. Uh, but they could immediately see that who they were arguing with had some authority on their side, and that might not work out quite so well for their career. Right. And, you know, that's that's really, I think, uh, some of the differentiation, because some of the companies, the privacy officer really just reports to legal or reports to some uh, you know someone else who is not so high, and then the priority of the company isn't really, you know, they don't put privacy as a real priority like they did at Microsoft for you. Well, we think very, we believe very, very, very much that privacy is uh, a position that can be strategically important to a company if the company chooses to place that level of importance on it. But it's really up to management. Right. You know, as, and I've heard you speak many, many times, and, and you really know what you're talking about. And do you think that we're going to see privacy built into the architecture of new companies? Do you think that that's going to be kind of the future of actually building it in? I have a lot of thoughts about the future uh, of privacy, but to your an- to the answer to your question is yes, it is, it is already being built in, it has been built in, and it continues to be. Some of the early uh, examples of that were uh, at Microsoft. Uh, in Internet Explorer 6, when we adapted the P3P specification and built in privacy controls for cookie management directly into the product, into the Internet browser, um, that was a very important step. There are other privacy-enabling technologies that, although they haven't taken off in the way that we might have expected them to, uh, they are emerging. And we're also seeing that startup companies, as well as traditional companies, are beginning to embrace uh, the management of personal data, which privacy is a component of, but managing personal data, which is a broader area and perhaps more strategically placed, as being fundamental to their uh, their management and asset strategies. Right. Now that you're CEO of Corporate Privacy Group, you've I noticed on your website it says you focus on the life cycle of personal data. Could you explain what you mean by that to my audience? We emphasize the responsibility that comes with handling data. The the important thing here is, just like many other things in our lives, when you do something, you you take a responsibility. Um, If you babysit, if you uh, consume things and and have packaging that uh, you have to dispose of, if you change your own oil in your car, you're responsible for your actions, and those actions can... Uh, either turn out good or not so good. Um, right. mm-hmm. it, handling data is, is, is much the same. And the life cycle that we describe is all about how data comes into, moves around in, is used by and touched by uh, people in the organization and outside the organization, and 
ultimately leaves the organization in some way or another. It's the life cycle of data. It comes in, you munge it, you use it, you share it, uh, you, 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 you manipulate it in different ways, um, and eventually you make a decision about, do I need this anymore, should I keep it, or should I destroy it? That's the life cycle. And every touch point along the stages of that life cycle has a privacy moment built in. And what we do is we emphasize the responsibility people have at each of those privacy moments. Right. The responsible information handling practices, right? Yeah. Let's go back to the uh, to the basics of privacy in the information age. And um, how did you actually get into this? I know you were the privacy officer of, of Microsoft, but how did, how did you actually decide that this was going to be something that, you know, you were going to focus on? Well, this was a few years after the, um, I had started at Microsoft, and I was, at the time, I was working on some data modeling efforts. We were trying to build what we called a worldwide data model, because um, at Microsoft, we had lots and lots of different people had built databases over time, and they'd all built them differently. So my job was to kind of organize out of all that chaos one way to express how do we keep people's information in a technical and an architectural way. Um, so I remember the day, if you're ready for a story here. Yeah, Mark, yeah, of course. I love stories. So, so <laughs> the, the, day was, uh, the day was August 24th, 1994. It was, I remember the day because that's the day Microsoft launched Windows 95. Uh-huh. And on that day, there was this... Uh, big celebration. This is so long ago, but huge celebration on campus. The launch event was enormous, and a helicopter dropped gold-colored CDs on the crowd below. And these were the, you know, this was the gold copy. This was the disc, uh, the original disc of of Windows 95 code. Mm-hmm. But Windows 95 was terribly, terribly important because it, the OEM copy at least, had a browser in it. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time that people actually got an attachment, a thing that they could attach themselves to the Internet in a very easy way. And it really launched how the Internet is used by everyone now. It made it accessible. Right, right. So, so I'm standing in this field, and I'm watching these disks flutter down, and I'm thinking, this is, <laughs> this is amazing, because what I've been doing over the, uh, what I had done over the last year was to study every international data model I could find and the Europeans at that time, in 94 and 95, were developing something they call the European Data Directive, which was restrictions right. on the way commercial enterprises could use personal information. Right. Well, this disk that was fluttering down and was about to be launched on the world had a device in it, a piece of software in it, that freed information up to allow people to get and give information very freely and use it any way they wanted. Well, yeah. it occurred to me as I watched these disks flutter in the sunshine in that August day <laughs> that that this was a train wreck, that uh-huh. Microsoft's and the technology industry's strategy for the future and at least the European Union's attitude toward information management were in conflict, and they weren't going to work together well. And somebody needed to pay some attention how to keep this train wreck from actually occurring. Right. The Pandora's box was open, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. 
So that was the light bulb that went on as you saw these discs fluttering in the sunshine, huh? It really was. <laughs> and, and, you know, from that moment on, I decided to pursue this issue as one that, not because, you know, and, and I have to be perfectly honest here, I'm not a priest, I'm not a monk. I didn't say that, oh my God, right. uh, people's information is going to be preyed upon, they're going to need consumer protection, I'm the white knight or anything <laughs> like that. It was more of a question of, gosh, business is going this way, policy and law is going in a different direction, or at least a collision course direction. Right, right. And if we don't solve that, it's just not good for anybody. And, so and, and you knew that, you know, with a company that goes global, that it was going to have that incongruency with the European Union's right. directive. So that Absolutely. it made a lot of sense. So what you do? You went back to the, your your team or and said, hey, we better do something about this? Is well, that... I didn't exactly have a team. <laughs> <laughs> this was, this was, this was just, I was just a guy had, you know, who had a kind of an insight. And I was only a couple of years into the company. So I started just working with uh, studying, talking to people, making connections, um, trying to convince people, kind of, I was getting on a bit of an evangelical bent, you know, where I was <laughs> trying to preach to people that this was an issue. Right. Um, I don't, I'm not very good at that in the sense that I don't, I'm not as disciplined as some people are. Some people can talk so eruditely and, and construct their arguments so well. For me, this was more of a passionate issue. It was something that uh, was uh, needed to be done, that I thought there was a problem and it needed to be solved. And so I was rather excitable about it, I suppose. And I spent that, from that time through the next several years, working on this issue. And I became, at Microsoft, I became recognized as knowing a lot about this stuff. Right. Um, and so inevitably, with the, the Office 97 applications, with the Windows 98 operating system launch, there were, there were, problems came up and, and questions came up about the gathering and use of personal information. Um, people in Microsoft came to me for answers. Well, I did, it wasn't my job to do it. I had a different kind of job. Right. But I answered them. I, I, took, I, I took the lead. Um, and as a result, I continually kind of just elevated myself and, and, and promoted myself, I suppose, well, also, um, when they asked you a question, you had to go and figure out an answer or, right. or do the research to find the answer, and then exactly. you became the sage. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's how it goes. I, I had a friend who uh, I was troubled by this. I felt like I was being rather pushy and kind of uh, arrogant about this, and um, a friend of mine essentially took me aside and says, look, you are who you say you are until somebody says you're not. So <laughs> you want to be the chief privacy officer around here, then just be it. And if somebody ultimately steps up and slaps you down and says, no, you're not, well, then you'll have that argument then. But until then, until somebody says that, then that's who yeah. you are. Yeah, so, well, you were the pioneer, and you had the light bulb go on, so you, you were the leader. You were the Peter Pan. <laughs> it was very fascinating. Uh, Pied Piper, maybe. The Pied Piper, right, right, Pied Piper. I, I could see you more as a Pied Piper than yeah, Peter well, Pan first. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, Pied Piper led rats. You have to be careful of that. <laughs> No, no. I mean, really. I mean, you, you, you know, to have that much influence, uh, it's got to feel good. I mean, you did good work, and you made a lot of changes that people felt more comfortable using Microsoft. And look at, look at how they have really brought privacy to a, a more conscious level for the rest of the companies around too, because of that. Well, I am pleased with with what, you know, with with the fact that I made a bet and it actually paid out. And you know, 
hey, Mari, you and I both probably, we've made bets in our lives and they didn't work <laughs> out that well, right? So right. I was pleased that I finally got something right. Um, but I was, I was very pleased that uh, the advancement of the issue uh, was as rapid as it was and the responsiveness of both commercial organizations as well as social and political organizations, governmental mm-hmm. organizations, worked together in order to find solutions. Uh, so the train wreck didn't happen. I was really right. happy to, right. to see. You so stopped that was, the train wreck, so that's well, good. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I helped to make it maybe just a glancing blow. <laughs> well, you know, we've been talking about privacy on this show. We've had over, a, oh, I guess 115 shows now. And it can still seems to be a confusing issue for people. How do you define it as one who was one of the early pioneers in, as a privacy officer? How do you define privacy? This may come a bit out of left field, but the way I see this, privacy is a personal state, like happiness. And it's not up to me or anyone to define what privacy or happiness is for other people. That's up to them. My job, and I think our job collectively, is to create circumstances that allow people to create and control their own personal information and their own state of privacy, whatever that is. It's not up to me to decide what that is. It's up to me to enable it. Right, that we have some choices. You and I were talking before the show started about how kids, you know, your kids and my kids have maybe a different sense of privacy. So, you know, generation gap has different sense of, of privacy. So giving that choice that you're talking about um, as, through the different generations is really very empowering and part of, you know, uh, you know civil liberties, so to speak, right? It is. Uh, there's a few things there, though, that, that we have to be cautious about because to exercise an informed choice implies that there's a certain level of maturity. Um, and you can't necessarily count on that for 12-year-olds or 9-year-olds or that kind of thing. So there's always this question about whether privacy is this anxiety of a middle age or is this, you know, and kids, look at kids, they're just using Facebook and they're using MySpace and they're using all these other sites and um, mobile phones and location, you know, data and that kind of thing. And, you know, I don't think that's new. Um, the more... I work in the in this world of managing personal data. The more I understand that everything old is new again, and it's just a new technology, but it's all the same human feelings and cultures underneath that. When I was a kid, and we were all young once, we have to remember that. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard kid, to remember that. <laughs> well, yeah, but we had party lines. We had dance parties. We had sure. overnights where we gossiped like crazy. We had all kinds of social networking devices. They weren't necessarily technical, right. but we had all kinds of ways that we would network with each other in a social way. Um, kids need to be connected to kids. Uh, they don't want to be connected to their parents so much. Right. And in fact, keep this in mind, in fact, the, the, the sense that children will gravitate to children and kind of reject parents is an assertion of their privacy from adults. Exactly. exactly. And, yeah. and they're willing to sacrifice that privacy with each other because, after all, they're friends and they understand each other and their parents don't understand them at all. Exactly. And, <laughs> To a great degree, we have to understand that it isn't that privacy isn't a middle-aged anxiety. That privacy just has different expressions. Today, 
I will confide, as a middle-aged person, I'll confide lots of private information to people I know and trust. Right. And that's what kids are doing. Right. That's all they're doing. And in a sense, their separation from the adult community is an assertion of their private life. I can do this myself. I don't need you anymore. This is, that's not a bad thing. Right. And I think it's just basic human nature. Now, does that mean that that post that uh, you make to MySpace and the length of Internet memory is going to not catch them in the butt someday? Well, it probably will, but it was fun at the time. So <laughs> right. put, this, put this in the category of it seemed like a good idea at the time. I, I, I just I want to be careful not to uh, jump on the bandwagon that, you know, kids are irresponsible. Um, and that no, I think, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that they're irresponsible. I think that they also may not understand the depth of the ramifications, like what you're saying here um, about may, may something that they put up, you know, on Facebook or, or MySpace come back to bite them later. Yeah, especially if if they want to become a lawyer and a law firm does a search on Google or whatever and, and some, goes on and searches uh, MySpace and sees things on there that might embarrass the law firm. Yeah, it might it might hurt them for getting a job. It, right. it, I don't think they're really aware of the ramifications that they're having fun, but they're just, you know, they're young. And just like we were young and we didn't, we maybe weren't aware of the ramifications of what we were doing when we were younger. Right. And, and just in the same sense, it's our job as parents and as adults to do everything we can to help, you know, young people achieve that level of maturity so they can make informed decisions um, and not take advantage of them. And that's, you know, that, but, but again, that's always been that way, right? Exactly. I, we're speaking tonight with Richard Purcell who is the CEO of Corporate Privacy Group, a great guy, a brilliant privacy professional who used to be the what was the original privacy officer for Microsoft, and now he is running the Corporate Privacy Group. You know, we were just talking about, um, you know, Facebook and MySpace, and, you know, I read something when you were talking about they have uh, this, that the younger people have a maybe a different view of privacy, and I read something that I thought was pretty fascinating that um, it was an article, it was, a, I guess, an op-ed piece by a woman who had just graduated from, I think it was Yale, and she was talking about that in Facebook, she was very happy to share information with her friends, but when someone was able to search her um, how how she searched to look at the other Facebook uh, entries, she felt very violated <laughs> because there was one of her friends was was looking at the Facebook entries of this guy that she had a crush on, and she didn't want him to be able to see that she was watching that. Yep, isn't that interesting? How well, they're happy to share everything else, but they don't. But so so everyone, like you said, we each have our own. Um, you know, sense of what needs to be private for us. Sure. Fascinating. And, and, and I think that human nature is just that way. And, uh, you know, this really isn't about privacy so much, as, in my opinion, um, as it is about the way that, as human beings, we adapt to technology. Or Because <laughs> it's a little like dogs and owners. For me, I've got a dog, and um, we think, oh, yeah, well, I'm training my dog. See, my dog will sit, my dog will shake, that kind of thing. Well, in fact, the dog has trained me. 
<laughs> dog gets me up in the morning. Dog makes me feed him, makes me give him treats, makes him, makes me go outside, you know, let him outside, makes me take walks with him. I'm really well trained, <laughs> and the dog has trained me. And right. to a certain degree, we have to resist technology training us and insist that we find ways that we train ourselves to adapt technology to our needs. Now, that's a big, tall order, and it kind of is contrary (laughs) to human nature. So it's not necessarily something I can promise we can do, but it's the way, in my practice, it's the way I try and approach the the responsible and honorable uh, uh, responsibility we have when we have personal data under our control. So, you know, what is the state of privacy in in our country right now? What do you think it is? I mean, we hear about the surveillance in the NSA letters, and then we hear about, you know, all the surveillance with AT&T and and the various uh, phone companies and, you know, the FISA court and surveillance cameras. We just came back from New York, the surveillance cameras everywhere. What do you think is the state of privacy in our country? Well, I think it's very mixed. Uh, and I think that technology has created a very significant and substantial challenge to how we view this whole concept. Certainly, uh, corporations and commercial enterprises have voluntary relationships with people. You can, you, you actually do have a choice as to whether or not uh, you can, you want to give a commercial enterprise information. Now, you, you might go without a cell phone, or you might not be able to partake in certain. Uh, certain things, but to a certain degree, those are voluntary relationships. Governments don't have voluntary relationships. Those are mandatory, and some people would even say coerced relationships, and we have to turn over information through birth records, through tax records, through our marriage records, our, you know, lots and lots of information is is required uh, to be turned over to the or to the government. So, there's a different relationship that we have in, in terms of our personal information. And I'm going to start dropping the word privacy because that's not a very useful term. But okay. in terms of my personal information, um, the relationship I have with commercial enterprises and the relationship I have my, with my government is different. Now, one of the big problems is when the government utilizes commercial data because they cross that line, all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I know the government has, I have to give my information to the government because they make me. Um, but when you go out to commercial organizations and utilize the stuff that I have a voluntary relationship with, that's, a, that's crossing the line. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the government goes to the telecommunications companies and utilizes their services in order to do some kind of surveillance, that's not great. I don't like that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Setting aside the whole issue of warrants, I still don't like it much. I don't think that the government uh, should have free and casual access to commercially uh, uh, enabled uh, information. Um, surveillance is, is another thing. I mean, who's surveilling uh, and, and who gets to, uh, gets to see the results of that surveillance? Is this purely a government thing? Is it for safety? Is it uh, in order to, uh, for commercial purposes, in order to entice certain actions? Uh, it's, it's hard to say. Um, surveillance so far, in my opinion, uh, in the, the, the largest surveillance society on the planet is the United Kingdom. 
which is seems weird, but it's true. Right, right. Um, and so far, the United Kingdom, despite the fact that there's like one camera for every 30 people on the in, in, in the country on that island, they haven't had great success in preventing crime. No, they they've can had, find people afterward, they've right. They've had good success in solving uh, crimes after the fact and finding out what happened. Right. But that didn't stop the crime from happening in the first place. Now, they have had some success in moving crime around. There's cameras there. Make, you know, do your robberies in other areas, those kinds right, of things. Right, right. Um, so the question really is on the table in the United Kingdom, and, and there's a last year there was a very significant uh, meeting of data protection authorities across the world in London that concentrated on the surveillance society as a subject. And the data commissioner in the UK is a leader in, in trying to think this through carefully. He's very responsible about this. But they're trying, to, they're trying very hard to begin to really question what the validity is, what the basis is, uh, how it'll be deployed, who will be using it, whether or not it's necessary, those kinds of things. And I, I, I'm, I welcome that. Because to a great degree, this is one of those crappy situations where people have said, hey, the technology can do it, so that's, that means I should do it. And right. that's just right. not true. Right. Just because right. you can doesn't mean you should. Right. And, and also the safeguards. You know, we've had on Senator um, Simidian, who's a California senator, mm-hmm. who has introduced quite a few pieces. Well, this year he had five bills um, for radio frequency identifiers. And what he is, he's in the Silicon Valley. He, he is very knowledgeable about technology. And one of the things he was trying to do that in the past two years that he wasn't able to get through was to um, limit the uh, use of RFIDs in driver's licenses until we can build in safeguards. Not, not to really say, no, we're never going to have it, but to build in the safeguards so those things cannot be read by readers 30 feet away by some fraudster or some or whatever. And I think that's the issue is that, you know, what are we doing? We have this technology and you're saying like what you're saying that, hey, just because we have it, should we use it? Well, we can if we use it responsibly. I think that's that's the issue. I think you're right. And I don't think we're very good at thinking about what the parameters, what the boundaries of that responsibility are. We we tend to think in the box, and we and and believe me, criminals and hackers don't think in the box. That's why they're right. so good. Right. They they have very good and very keen out of the box thinking, and that's why they can create attacks that were never anticipated. And if you don't anticipate the attack, then you can't prevent it. And in fact, you may very well have enabled it. And exactly. And, and those are the kinds of things we have to be careful of. RFID is good because. Is a good. It's a, that's a real kind of uh, touchstone issue that a lot of people object to because of its uh, because of the ability to read it from without touching it. Right. Um, fine. That's that that's an issue. But I mean, there's lots of these kinds of issues. Um, even even well, there's lots. Well, of even GPS. I mean, you know, I'm I was reading something just recently about you know the OnStar and and how that you know what, again it's it goes back to the issue of when. When you agree to a technology to be used with your information for one purpose, and suddenly you find out it's really being used insidiously for many other purposes that you never agreed to. Correct. And it isn't just technology. Keep in mind that right. if, if, I mean, 
unfortunately, I'm old enough to where when I go into a bar, I don't get carded anymore. It's not it it, it it's unfortunate, but I know um, that I, I always am happy when someone asks for our card. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But the 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 issue for me is that this isn't a technology discussion. This is just a different kind of discussion. But in order to buy alcohol legally in the United States, you have to show a driver's license. Well, you shouldn't have to do that because it doesn't. There's no law that says Richard Purcell it can or can't buy alcohol. It says people over 21, only people over at 21 or over can buy it. And we use our driver's license as our proof of age. However, it's a proof of identity, too. Right. And it also reveals attributes, gender, weight, height, address, I mean, a lot of things. So, And if what, we put those RFIDs in well, there... Well, if we put uh, RFIDs yeah. in there, I mean, right now they're scannable. And the California right. driver's license is good for this. You can use just common scanners to collect that information. So right. let's make it easy on bar owners. When you walk in a bar, you have to slide your, your ID through a scanner and that proves that you are allowed to come in and, and, and have alcohol. Well, the problem being that that creates a database that the bar owner absolutely, because they paid money to get that, will use for marketing, for whatever. And, of course, in, divorce lawyers can say, where was this person exactly. at this time? Was this other person in the same place at the same time? Oh, in fact, they're, they scan their cards two seconds apart from each other, so they or, entered or, together. Or maybe they should lose custody because they've been at that bar eight on, nights in a row. Or insurers <laughs> or medical providers. Right. And so these, right. Are, these are the times when we have to look at how our personal data is being used, how it's being collected. Again, we go back to that data lifecycle. How is it being collected? Who's collecting it? How are they using it? Where are they storing it? With whom are they sharing it? How are they managing it? Those are the privacy moments that we have to track through in all cases. I would have no problem with scanning a driver's license if it simply had a red light, green light on it and didn't capture the data. Exactly. It just signaled to somebody that this is valid or not valid. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Right. But we should have a smart chip on our driver's license and very little readable stuff and just this smart chip that has an encrypted coded amount of information that only law enforcement because they have the key right can get to right um right. so i've worked on those issues with the department of homeland security on the real id comments and i would invite uh, your listeners to uh to investigate what is going on with the real ID driver's license uh, bill or act? Uh, it's a it's a law, and its implementation. Um, they can go to the dhs.gov/privacy uh, site and look at the comments that our committee made on that issue. Yeah, I'm going to get back to that in a second, but I want okay. to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Richard Purcell, who is the corporate who is the CEO of Corporate Privacy Group. He's got a wealth of knowledge about privacy and one of the real pioneers as the original privacy officer of Microsoft and now the head of Corporate Privacy Group, which really focuses on responsible information management. Lloyd wants me to ask you if you know who Hugh Thompson is for Tech TV. Do you know who that is? I've met Hugh. Have you? He is hysterical. Yeah. Have you been on his show? No, I haven't. Oh, you have to be. I was just on his show, and it's his. he is absolutely hysterical. Every one of his guests, that's where we were. We were just in New York, and that's one of the shows I was on. Every one of his guests, when you come on his show, the band makes up a song about you. 
<laughs> and so they were singing this song, and here's the 150 people in the audience, and they had to keep singing the refrain, and it kept saying, don't don't mess with Mari Frank. Don't mess with Mari. Don't mess with Mari Frank. <laughs> anyway, it was hysterical. You have to go on. Well, I'll, I'll write him an email. I'm going to say he has to have you on his show. It is such a fun show to be on. But Lloyd wanted me to ask you because he said he thought you'd be perfect for that show. I, 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 yeah, I'd, be, I'd have fun with that kind of thing. You would. He and, is. And, and, and one has to remember that as serious as this subject is, there's no reason not to have fun and to enjoy it. And even when it gets to be this crazy conundrum where, uh, as an example, somebody says, look, I don't want any spam. And so uh, the response, of course, is, fine, I'll, I'll not send you any unsolicited email. What's your email address? And, of course, the person says, I don't want any email. What do you need my email address for? <laughs> and you have to say, well, look. If I don't know what your email address is, there's a chance I will send you something. <laughs> if I have it, I can put it on my, you know, uh, my suppression list, right. and that way I'll make sure I never send it to you. So that's part of the conundrum of privacy. You know, I can't right. respect your privacy if I don't know who you are. It's kind of like the, the do not call list. I, I have to give you my numbers so that you take them off, so somebody can look at those numbers. And make sure that they don't call That's those correct. numbers. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's a bit of a challenge. But, of course, there has to be some kind of promise that people can rely on, a trust that you are going to, you know, have responsible information handling, that you, when I tell you not to share it, you're not going to share it. When I tell you to protect it, you're not going to just, you know, let anybody come on and, and, and steal this information or have access to it that they shouldn't have. Well, this is about trust. And, and privacy is only one way to gain trust. As a commercial operator, if I want somebody to trust me, there's a variety of ways that I have to do that. I have to be available. I have to, they have to know who I am and can get whatever I'm offering to them. Whatever I offer has to be uh, reliable. Uh, it, you can't sell somebody something that doesn't work and have them still trust you. You have to be responsive. You have to wait on people. You have to ship things on time. You have to be, uh, you know, uh, fair. Pricing has to be fair. Quality has to be good. Uh, you have to keep their information private when they share it with you. You have to keep your promises. These are all components and elements of trust. And so privacy is only a, one of the many elements of trust in a relationship. And we have to think about this not in terms of the kind of uh, independent parts like privacy, but rather what is it we're trying to accomplish here? Right. And trust is the goal. You know, uh, we've talked before about society, and what can we as individuals do? You know, I think so many people feel so impotent when it comes to protecting our privacy. And you were talking earlier about each of us has a different threshold, and one of the things that you your philosophy is that we should have some choices, and whatever threshold that we feel comfortable with is we should have a choice about that. But... You know, how do we get those choices? It doesn't really seem like we have many choices anymore. Well, I think there's a few ways that we could uh, address that, Mari. And, and, and one is to, first of all, remember that there is a golden rule, and that is that you should treat others as you yourself would want to be treated. So, first of all, we in our everyday life, we should respect other people's information, their privacy, um, which could come down to saying, you know, 
don't gossip so much. Or, you know, if somebody tries to tell you something that you don't think is necessarily appropriate, you might say, you know, I'd, I'd rather not hear about that. That sounds like confidential information, and, you know, I, it's not my business. So I wouldn't rather know about that. Secondly, uh, we can keep our information to ourselves a little better. Uh, we're a bit of a blabbermouth community and in, in, in society. Um, when somebody says, can I have your phone number, we tend to give them our phone number. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps share a little more stingily, um, be a little bit uh, less uh, available for that kind of, of information exchange, um, be a little bit more skeptical uh, and ask people what they're going to do with the information. Um, and, you know, read documents. Don't just hit next uh, and turn the page or or sign with, you know, turn to the signature line and just sign without reading. Check it out. And it doesn't hurt to push back. It, you know, the worst case that could happen is that, you know, you don't get what you want um, and you have to go find a different provider who will give it to you under the terms you want. Or you end up giving up some some of your information, but at least you'll know, you know, better the circumstances. To me, this is a bit like environmentalism, Mari. Uh, I have I have a water bottle here with me right now, and I don't know about you, but for me, because I have this plastic water bottle in my hand, I have a responsibility to dispose of it properly so it can be recycled, reused, and I can reduce the amount of energy it takes to make another water bottle. Fine. Right, That's right. my responsibility. Now, we've all learned environmental consciousness over time, and we're getting at least, if not really good at it, at least pretty good at it. We're getting better. We're getting better all the time. Yeah, we're not throwing things out the window like they we did. We can do the same with privacy. <laughs> yeah. If I have a piece of paper at my work and somebody's personal information is on that, do I have the same level of concern as I do over this little tiny water bottle? We should. Absolutely. We should, we should say, is this valuable? Do I have a responsibility for it? How do I act on that responsibility so that it's protected and so that I, I am, you know, I, I do what is right, and and it just is going to take a little time. I'm, you know, it's I'm a, it's very, a mindset. It's a, a mindset. It just really like is. Envir- environmental consciousness, we're going to get to a privacy consciousness sometime. It may take some time, but we will, and it'll get better. Yeah, um, my I'm, concern is that un- unlike the water bottle and environmentalism, you know that the there is real profit to be made on databases of sharing our information and and selling our information. You know, oh, yeah. I mean that marketing, and I think that's the problem is that that you know the information that we provide isn't really our own, unlike you know how it's considered in the European Union. No, I agree with that. Yeah, but we have to keep in mind that the solution in the European Union was designed pr- prior to the internet, and it's not entirely working as 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 much as as everybody would like, uh, largely because information is a little uh, freer, it's a little more lubricated, moves around a little easier. Um, it also is, is not allowing European businesses to be as robust, perhaps, uh, as others. You and I, Mari, you know, we, I, we can go into a store and we can buy a computer or a washing machine or go to a dealership and buy a car and with just a small amount of paperwork it seems like a lot but really with a small amount of paperwork we can actually take that home without spending any money and that's largely because we have this very robust credit system in the United States that uses personal information 
very, very, very much. And it allows us to have these kinds of free economies that are very active, very dynamic, very robust. Well, fine. So are we going to give that up? You know? No, no, of well, course not. <laughs> then, then we have to be careful because there is a trade-off. Anytime we clamp down on the use of personal data, um, there are trade-offs to it. I agree. There are bad players who, you know, who who make a lot of money in in ways that probably are not the best. But at the same time, this has given us a great degree of freedom in the United States and in other places, and it's uh, it's a dynamic and very interesting area. I love this area. I mean, it is. It's it's like the Wild West, you know, even with the Internet and all this information age, it's like the Wild West, and we're trying to find our way. And, you know, there's that whole issue of self-regulation versus, you know, uh, the federal legislation and state yep. legislation. And, you know, being being from California and the the home of a lot of privacy legislation that has made a tremendous influence on our country, like the security breach notification you know, I'm I'm tending to see that self-regulation is not really working as much well, as you know, fed, you know, the legislation that we we almost have to say this is a law. You know, you're going to have to protect us. But I don't believe that this is a either-or condition. I don't believe that uh, it's a question of if you know that self-regulation in absence of any other uh, uh, legislation or legislation in and absent any self-regulatory behavior is either one of those is a good model that's they're, they're neither one's very useful well but often best, often when you have the some good companies taking the lead then legislation sometimes comes in like you know like the PCI compliance for example from sure. Visa MasterCard American Express now that's starting to be codified in well, Minnesota and, and you know and we need we need the balance of good self-regulatory behaviors and frameworks supported by good legislative uh, actions, supported by uh, true enforcement of those actions by, you know, responsible government agencies. The, the, the landscape has to be uh, complemented across all of those areas in order to have a truly dynamic and successful marketplace. We can't depend on any one of those as single players. It's very complementary. Um, as a member of trustee and a longtime supporter of trustee, and trustees celebrating its 10th anniversary right. coming up right now this yeah. year, very happy about that. Um, we feel like uh, I feel like self-regulatory frameworks are excellent to have because they reduce the load off of the regulators in terms of enforcement. They become a first uh, right. party to all the actions, and and they they do a lot of good, actually curing behaviors. A, a, a legislative framework is also a good thing to act within. And a self-regulatory framework can work within a set of legislative law. That's fine, no problem. But then we also need enforcement. And we need right. people like the Federal Trade Commission to do, continue to do the kind of job that they do so well, which is to come down on bad players and make sure that they're made examples of. Right. I think that's a good thing. Yep. I want to get into about, oh, um, since we have many business listeners as they drive by here in Newport Beach, 5 to 6 p.m., they're driving home from work. And we also have a very um, robust MBA program here, a lot of business students right here on the campus. So can you tell our students a little bit about an overview of what corporations should do to respect 
and protect personal information. I know you do a lot of consulting and set up a lot of training for that. Can you give us kind of an overview of a few tips of what they should be doing when they're when they're setting up that kind of a, a respect and, and protection of information? One of the first things, Mari, is very important to establish your principles and what you believe in. And one of the best ways to respect uh, information is to collect as little as you need. And for the most part, in the United States particularly, uh, people collect things because they might need it in the future. Um, and so they over-collect. Right. Well, that's, it's not necessary. If I'm going to, as an example, get an email, uh, subscribe to an email newsletter, all you need is my email address. That's it. You might need a password so you can verify that I am me, but email address, that's it. You don't need my name, my address, my gender, my income, my social status, my marital status, my kind of car I drive. You don't need that stuff. So only collect what you need. Secondly, only use what you collect, this minimal amount, for the purpose for which you collected it. Right. And then always tell people what you're going to do with it, how you're going to use it. So minimize, limit your purpose, disclose everything you're doing, and then, you know, accept the fact that this is a relationship and you don't own people's data. You are entrusted with it. There's a difference. And since you're entrusted with it, allow people to see what you have on them and to correct things if they're considered incorrect. Those are the basics. Then on top of that, you have to secure that data. Make sure you protect it. And make sure that it's only used for the purposes you said you were going to use it for. Make sure you only uh, share it with those people you said you were. Make sure those are protections are in place. It doesn't leak, that kind of thing. And finally, find a way to make sure that's enforced, that you monitor what's going on, that you check your behavior. This is a bit of a trust but verify kind of uh, part of it that says, you know, do you have audits? Do you have training for employees and education programs for employees so they know what is expected of them? Do you have regular reviews? Do you have vendor contracts? Those kinds of uh, basic things that make sure that it's all in place. It's, it's, it sounds a little less complicated. It sounds very common sense. It can be complicated once it gets running. But for the most part, this is something that people should think about doing uh, at a level of common sense, too. Right. And I've heard you talk about also don't keep things more than you need yeah. for the length of time. That's yeah. the one other thing I've heard you say before. Right. If you and don't it, need it, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Because I, I, not only could it hurt you in terms of a, of a legal action, but also if it's sitting around, I mean, think about the T.J. Maxx stuff where right. all that old stuff was stolen and yeah. and i know even offline people have had i, I know a whole bunch of uh, identity theft victims who found out that old payroll documents from 20 years before were right. stolen and then they got their identity stolen now what in the world this company was keeping this old payroll documents in a in a closet 20 years old. Well, <laughs> it doesn't are, make sense, you know. People are lazy, mm-hmm. and, and, and we have to anticipate that they're going to be lazy. But if you think about it ahead of time, you say, you know what, people are going to be lazy. I'm going to be lazy. So I'm going to set up a procedure that'll help me correct against that actions or inaction in this case. And so you're right. If you don't need it anymore and it's no longer important to you, why the heck are you keeping it? 
get rid of it. And in, if, if it needs to be stored because of a regulatory requirement, right. um, then store it somewhere where you, are, you can face up to the accountability for your, your actions in storing it to where it's safe. Right. It better be encrypted if it's electronic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I loved on your website you have all these um, web-based education curriculum and that tell us a little bit about that. We don't. We only have about four more minutes. Oh, three minutes. Lloyd says. Okay. But I want people to know that you have some web-based training there too. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we do. give your website. This uh, we, we produce uh, with a partner organization. We produce privacy directions, which is uh, designed for corporations so that they can train their employees. I really don't train CPOs. Uh, what I'm. What's important to me is to train everybody in an organization because everybody's responsible for privacy and security if you just depend on the cpo then you're oh, absolutely it. it could be it could be the bottom line uh, operator who's absolutely. giving away the store you're so right this is just like environmentalism we need everybody along the chain of trust which everybody in these privacy moments where they have to respect information has to know what to do so we develop privacy directions it's a curriculum of uh, seven or eight or nine courses um, which are web-based courses that corporations can license and, and deploy inside their organizations that teach their, uh, their employees how to develop a culture of privacy and security for respecting and protecting personal information. And when they do that, they're also going to respect the information of their employees and, and probably their intellectual property better, too. Yeah, we have a course for HR management, um, and these are, these are practices that we think bleed over into a lot of different uh, areas, including, as you say, uh, product information and intellectual property. Great. Well, do you have a, a final thing you want to tell us? Because Lloyd says we have about a minute. I mean, how do you want to leave us? What should, we, what, should, what, what should we think about for the future of privacy and responsible information management? Well, I encourage people to be very optimistic about what we can do. Um, we can do anything, and we just have to have a way of thinking and talking about this, a vocabulary that makes sense. Uh, we have to have leadership. We have to start thinking about how this is not just about privacy. This is about managing personal information in ways that actually benefit individuals. It's no longer about this, I want to collect all this information so I can have one-to-one -one marketing and you can have a better life because nobody's believing that because you don't have a better life because of it. You have to start thinking about, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collect at the least amount possible from you and still give you the benefits uh, of, of this service or product. And hopefully we can have a great relationship even if I don't know who you are. And that's where I think we need to start going is why do you need to know me? What do you need to know about me? What's the least we can get shared here and still have the best relationship. And I, and I love that your goal is respecting and protecting personal information. Right. And Lloyd is saying it's time to go. You're so wonderful. We loved having you on, Richard. It's my pleasure. If you want to know more about Corporate Privacy Group, you can go to www.corporateprivacygroup.com. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll Mari, see you soon. It's a pleasure talking with you. Take care. Okay, you too, you Lloyd. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net.
I'm Mari, your host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and see our upcoming guests. The opinions and Good views night. expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.